All right, so today we're here with composer and woodwind player, woodwindist, uh, I guess, maybe, uh, Brian Kroc and his brand new album, Big Heart Machine, uh, came out last week. Uh, that would be August the 24th, 2018. So, Brian, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. No problem, man. And uh, so you just released this record. But before we talk about the record, I'd love for people to get to know you and all the things that you're up to. So could you give us a little background about how you got from where you started to getting to New York and before you even recorded this new project? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm from uh, the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, and um, I went to school for music at the University of Illinois, and um, that school happened to have a great jazz program. So I kind of, I was, as a kid, I was really into guitar, and I was playing a lot of classical guitar, and like playing in metal bands and stuff. Um, I had a, a long-running progressive rock band called Lorna Sue. Um, I was pretty late coming to jazz, to be honest. Um, when I got to college, I was just like getting my mind blown by the faculty at the U of I. And, and I sort of realized how um, unlimited the musical world of jazz was at that point. And it, it just really inspired me to work my ass off. Uh, can I swear on this? Yeah, yeah go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. So anyways, um, I was lucky in that um, a guy named Jim McNeely went to my alma mater, the University of Illinois, and uh, he, uh, you know, I I heard about him through the school and got really into his music and started composing for big bands, and then I kind of just got my mindset on the idea of moving to New York to study with him at MSM, and. Uh, and then, like, I don't know how I got into that program, to be honest, because I quickly realized once I moved to New York how uh, insanely high the level is of everything here, you know? And, um, like, everybody's playing and writing and uh, general, like, business and stuff. Um, so I've spent the last um, eight years here now basically trying to... Uh, get my projects off the ground and just sort of prioritize practicing and writing and improving um, so that I could basically hang here with uh, these great musicians. So, um, yeah. Nice. So what what were you studying when you were at undergrad? Were you a saxophone major? Were you something else? Yeah, I was a saxophone major, um, but I also took private classical composition lessons oh wow um yeah my whole path has been very circuitous um i've i've i have a, like a lot of different interests and have kind of been <clears throat> juggling them but at that point in my life i was i was getting really excited about classical composition um and i studied with a guy named reynold tharp um who people who know him know him he's really well respected composer in like the the contemporary avant-garde uh like ultra complex classical music world mm -hmm. um and then um at the same time just because i was in college and it was a, it, there was this great jazz program i was constantly auditioning for the big bands and um by my junior year i think i got 
to study private saxophone lessons with the saxophone teacher there. So it took me a minute to like work my way up the the chain. I really had to like start from the beginning um, in terms of jazz. But um, so you never were a jazz a jazz kid in high school. You never. I mean, I participated in in jazz big bands all the way back to middle school. Mm-hmm. But um, but I just did those. Um, like I never had the epiphany of like um, listening to like Michael Brecker or whatever that people have. I kind of just um, I kind of just did those because you do them in school, and I played saxophone. Mm-hmm. But my main focus was guitar, mm-hmm. and I actually remember vividly when I sort of changed paths because my I was studying classical guitar um, at a summer program at Northwestern, and um, and the teacher basically discouraged me from going into classical guitar she was like her name was ann waller and she's one of the best classical guitar players in the world and we spent like a month working on some bach lute suites and i just wasn't like digging it i like i didn't have the focus nor the drive to like practice 12 measures of of bach for like six hours you know what i mean (laughs) yeah and she knew that I also played saxophone and I was playing saxophone well, but not like that well. I didn't like get into like any all state bands or anything like that. Um, and she was like, I think your odds of actually like working would be better if you prioritize the saxophone. So at the time I, I was like crushed, but um, it was useful information. I, I then like applied for colleges as a saxophone major. Um, and I think, like, if there are any young people listening to this, they'll be, like, heartened maybe to know that, like, I didn't get into any music programs in college. I, like, I I applied for, you know, a dozen. And the only one I got into was the University of Illinois. So that's why I went there, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I just was kind of, I guess I was, I was um, so, like, interested in a million different things that I never really got good at one of them. Um, and then, you know, I became a woodwind doubler, so I'm still doing that today. <laughs> I'm, I'm like practicing nine different instruments and I constantly feel like I'm, um, you know, not doing any of them justice. <laughs> I think that's a good point to bring up, you know, as a woman player, I know a lot, sometimes college level, um, woodwind players, saxophone players don't want to kind of address those doubles. But at least from my experience, it seems like the ones that work the most in New York are the ones that know how to deal with that. So like, what is your reality of playing woodwinds in New York? Like, what are you having to play? Yeah. Well, when I was in college in the Midwest, I thought I was like a hot shit doubler. I thought like I was killing. Then when I moved out here, I basically realized very quickly that the best woodwind doublers, the ones who are constantly working, they play at least flute, clarinet, and saxophone all at a professional level. And they've all spent time like studying with great flute teachers and great clarinet teachers. Um, and then there are those people, including myself, who play double reeds. So it's not enough out here to just own a flute and be able to to play some notes you you really have to spend some time um i think a mutual friend of ours charles pillow 
he was the first guy that I met who was like, you need to have phases. Like you need to spend three years study with a, a flute teacher and consider yourself a flautist um, and make that your main instrument. But, you know, maintain the other ones and then spend three years with a clarinet phase, you know, and I actually did that. I, I took that to heart. Um, I got lucky in a way in that I right out of college um, found my way into a Broadway national tour. And that those are kind of gigs where you have just all day free every day. Um, you sit down in a city for like one or two weeks and you just have to show up at the theater at eight o'clock. So I brought my doubles with me and I really intensely shed during that period of my life. Like I would be in the hotel room just, um, uh, annoying my neighbors every day. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and so I've had great, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 go, go for it. I've had great teachers on every instrument too. Um, like, um, I studied with Larry Guy on clarinet and he teaches at Juilliard and, um, has played in, a, like a handful of major symphonies around the world and is a world renowned educator. And, um, I have had great teachers on the flutes and right now I'm studying with Ben Kono on oboe. And, um, and I think that also this isn't just limited to woodwind players, but I just think everybody out here is constantly taking lessons. Even the best players, they're like, they're just constantly trying to improve. Um, however incrementally that might be. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm kind of trying to emulate that right now. I'm just, I'm always, studying with somebody um and yeah the being able to play woodwind doubles it doesn't sound very exciting when you're young and you want to um you have a lot of creative ideas and you want to establish your personal voice on your instrument but um it's the the thing that's allowed me to stay here it's it's how i pay my rent now and um and it helps me make this record and stuff so i i highly recommend um that saxophone players start thinking about it as early as possible. So when did you first start getting into composing for big bands specifically? Because uh, I guess maybe not big band, but large jazz oriented ensemble. Yeah. Well, um, the very first thing I ever wrote for a big band was, um, was terrible it was an arrangement of embraceable you and i just happened to be over the summer between college semesters i was playing in a big band in the midwest called the fathom brothers jazz orchestra i don't oh, know if sure. you know yeah I know, like, John. yeah yeah those guys they i mean everybody in the midwest when we were young played in in that band and um they let me bring in a piece because i just wanted to try it and um and in retrospect, like I've actually listened to the recording pretty recently just for grins, but um, it was a terrible arrangement, but I, I'll never forget like the feeling of, of having a, a big band play something that I wrote, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just incredibly exciting, and it's, um, it's, it's like a puzzle, you know, it's challenging and, um, and very rewarding, so... Um, so that's when I started to like explore it. Um, and then at the U of I, the, the concert jazz band, 
um, rehearses every day and they read new music by students pretty much on a daily basis. So even if you're just working on like a piece and you only wrote eight bars, um, Chip McNeil, the the director of that band, would would read it so you could hear it, you know, and uh, and that was just like invaluable. Like you could you could write eight bars and then orchestrate it three different ways, you know, or like just like I would do things like just like write um, a triad or whatever and see what the different trumpet mutes sound like, see what the um, you know try putting like the tenor on the lead voice and a trumpet on the middle voice, you know, like, just like you could experiment. So, and then I just got lucky that I got to study with Jim McNeely and that was what really changed my life. He, I mean, and he changed my, my whole perspective about music in every way. How did he do that? Well, like when I, the first day that I met him, um, well, it probably wasn't the first day I met him, but the first lesson that we had, mm-hmm. he, he said, um, he said, all right, so your assignment for next week is to fill 10 pages of manuscript paper with notes. And he was like, don't think about whether or not these notes are good sounding or bad sounding. Don't worry about if your ideas are exciting or not. He was like, just literally just fill pages with notes. 10 pages, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was like, all right, that's kind of out, but I'll, I'll try it. And, um, and I did. And then the next lesson, we looked through all those 10 pages and he like circled like this bar, there's something cool there. Fill a couple pages with just those notes, you know? And then he basically just got me to see that composition, um, is in many ways a process of choosing, your best ideas, not like, um, not like, you know, a lot of people sort of have fear of the blank page, or I guess today you might say fear of the blank, um, computer screen. But, um, people are like, I I notice this with my own students too. Like just, there's like this anxiety about like wanting whatever you write to be really, really great. Mm -hmm. But like Jim's Mm -hmm. whole philosophy was like, just fill up pages and pages with stuff. And then composing is the process of choosing the best ideas and then just let go of everything else that, that isn't good. And so, I mean, I still, I mean this right before you called, I was just writing kind of random ideas. Um, I just kind of do that every day. And, um, and I try to think about that in every aspect of what I do now. Like I, this is kind of another topic, but like making my first record, I'm almost 30 years old and I, and this is my first record, which I think is kind of late to be starting this process. But, um, the reason I haven't done it before is because I always felt like, oh man, I'm not that good yet. Oh, my, my songs just aren't that good yet. Um, I'll do a record when I have like a really great book of music, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, and then finally, like actually through talking with um, my friend Ollie, who has like three or four records out now and um, is very prolific, he was like, dude, stop making excuses. You're never going to feel like your ideas are good enough, so you might as well just start recording them now. Because he, he was like, you're going to be 40 and you're still going to think your ideas aren't good enough. <laughs> and I, I realized that's like kind of accurate, you know, like no musician 
ever thinks like, wow, I really made it. I'm good now or whatever, you know? So, um, you just kind of have to like start doing stuff and, and writing is the same way. Just start writing and do it every day. Eventually I guarantee you something will come out of it. Yeah, man, that touches on a lot of topics that I talk to my students about too. And I agree with you. Just, it's a practice and you have to practice it every day. You have to just, you know, and writers talk about that too. Writers of, you know, prose, the, Right. Just filling up pages every day and then don't judge what it is and just pick the best stuff and keep going. So um, I think I think you're on to something there. But I don't think uh, I don't think 30 is that old. I just turned 30. (laughs) Yeah, man. But like, I mean, come on, like you're so prolific. And, And, you know, when you look around the music scene, I mean, just in New York, but really all over the world, there's people just start putting stuff out when they're you know, young. And, and by the time they're 30 years old, they've really figured it out. And I, I really admire that quality, um, especially in you, to be honest, man. I've learned so much since I met you about, you know, pretty much all the facets of the music business. Oh, well, that's nice of you to say, but I'm still right there with you trying to figure things out. You right. Know, we're all the same. I'm just all trying right. to figure it out as we go. But uh, right. I think that leads us right up to the record. And uh, so could you tell us a little bit about the name of the record and who's in the band and kind of what you're excited about about it? Sure. I mean, I'm excited about everything about it. Um, it, it um, the band's called Big Heart Machine. And for the first record, I really wanted it to be a statement like um, – introducing the band so it's just an, a self-titled record called big heart machine and um without getting too deep into it i kind of assigned myself this like project of making the big band record a few years ago now um while i was touring with the broadway show and i i um i don't want to i i I don't want to sound ungrateful for the work that I've been lucky to have, but I was pretty miserable on this Broadway show. Um, it was like the least creative experience of my life. Um, and for listeners who don't know, I mean, it entails playing the same show eight days or eight times a week, you know, six days a week. And then when you're not playing, you're traveling. Mm-hmm. And um, I just felt so uninspired. And so I, I've set the goal of like at the end of this touring experience, I'm going to book some studio time and, um, and then I'll be forced to get music together for that. And, um, and that's what I did. So like I, I booked the studio time and then I started calling friends and, um, and I, I just thought rather than hire like, um, the top call guys in the city, I would just call all of my collaborators, um, you know, friends of mine who I know really well, um, mostly because I, I couldn't handle the anxiety of, of, um, you know, getting like, you know, whatever, whoever you want to say in the room. So I just wanted to be surrounded by loving friends so I wouldn't be scared (laughs) essentially. Um, and so it was a no brainer to ask like the rhythm section for my small group, um, to be the rhythm section, um, which 
ended up being extremely interesting because most of those guys, um, I have another band that's called Little, and I've been playing with those guys for forever. It's me, Nathan Elman Bell, Ollie Hervon, and Marty Kenny, and we've been playing since we were like in our early 20s. So, and we get together all the time just to play for fun, so we have this sort of unspoken rapport. But none of those dudes are actually like big band players. So, um, so playing in a big band was like a new experience for them, which, in my opinion, made it a lot more interesting sounding. Um, Nathan couldn't en- ended up not being able to make the session, so I got um, Josh Bailey to play drums, and like he's like a, a studio cat, you know, like he plays, he does works a lot in like Nashville and plays in a lot of pop bands. Um, but he's also an incredibly um, talented jazz drummer. And he approached making this record like he would one of those sort of studio projects where we like designed the drum sounds for each track. And he brought a million different drums because he was like, on this track, I want to use like a really big snare, you know, that type of thing. So mm-hmm. I thought that having that rhythm section um, is one of the most exciting things about the band because it's to my ears sounds it doesn't sound like a big band record um because of their contribution you know sure. and then i also i i play a lot in new Sue's band so i just wanted her to be involved so i added vibes parts to all my charts just to have her there um and i love her playing and her vibe and stuff and and then i just filled out the band like that i just i it's it's a i think it's an awesome band and it's all just people that i have been playing with for a long time. So, um, and I, I've told a lot of people this at this point, but I'll just repeat it that I think that Duke Ellington's sort of, um, method of, of writing for big bands is still, um, the most successful, or I should say Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, um, uh, where they wrote, they, they basically composed, um, situations, to showcase the strengths of their players, you know? Um, so I also tried to do that, you know? Like, I knew that I was going to have Charlotte Grev playing lead alto, and she's got one of my favorite saxophone sounds in the world. And um, so I wanted to set her up with situations where she could, like, play really beautiful melodic stuff. But then... In the same section, I had Jay Ratman playing Barry, and I, I, he's a virtuoso clarinet player, so I wrote a lot of really challenging clarinet stuff because I knew he could step up to that, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of, that was the, the whole process. It makes listening to the record, at least for me, so fun because, um, because like, everybody's distinct musical personality uh i think made it into it you know what i'm saying like i don't think i i don't think anybody had like a wet blanket Mm -hmm. shutting down um so yeah and then really cool to have uh, my friend miho hazama agree to conduct the band because she's like so busy incredibly busy like an internationally in demand arranger and uh, and she, I think she's the best conductor. I, I mean, she's just she's so good at conducting. 
I'm sure you've probably played in bands with her conducting before. I'm guessing. And, oh yeah. And I, I think you'd agree. Like she, it's just so easy to to follow her. Um, and she she really made a lot of this happen. Um, having her like sign on was a big like coup early on in the process of planning the record. Yeah, man, that's amazing. And so, yeah. and I know you had one other really important producer kind of behind the scenes of the session. That's right. Yeah. Um, Darcy James Argue, who I, I just saw his band play last night, by the way. I know we were texting about it. Um, right. yeah. he's, he's a genius. I mean, yeah, man. Um, he, I like cold emailed him, um, just like on his website, you know, but mm-hmm. he turns out to be just such an incredibly, um, thoughtful, person that he like responded and he was like uh, you know i'm really busy and i don't really produce records but i'll check out your music so send me some of your scores so i sent him some scores and then um i didn't hear from him for a long time and then finally he got back to me and he was like brian these scores are like incredibly complex like this is you really have your work cut out for you and he was like um i think you're gonna need my help so (laughs) so so and he just happened to be free for the days that we were in the studio and um and working with him was like transformative for me in a lot of ways like he he held my hand man through the whole thing like we would get together for coffee and he'd be like all right now you need to go do this make a spreadsheet he it literally sent me his files for like the real enemies recording session oh wow and he was like here's what you need to do like put together these edit maps and spreadsheets and make sure you, you, you know, he helped me schedule the days of the recordings, which would have never even occurred to me. There were just, I was so fresh and new during this whole process. So he, um, and then as a producer, I mean, he's meticulous. His ears are crazily good. So it was just fun in a way to like, to have to do a take and then hear him in the control room be like, uh, third trumpet was flat first trombone was a little too loud and josh could you make that fill a little you know and he would have like tons of really perceptive feedback um yeah he's so so meticulous is a great word and it comes through in his his projects as well and so i'm I'm really glad that uh he got to be involved with yours because i'm sure it helped out it did and you know what like just in terms of like living your life Mm -hmm. i've learned a lot from darcy like he's he's like the way he approaches music he seems to approach every facet of his life and because of that he's like incredibly like easy to work with because he responds to your emails promptly he like um he's prolific because he schedules composing time into his days and like he's organized and um, and I, I've been trying to improve my own life in, in that way. Like, um, basically just, just like, uh, approaching everything you do with that same high level of, of, uh, standard, you know? Yeah, no, that's amazing. It's important to have, you know, that those realizations or have those people that kind of just like show you the way a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, man. So what's coming up for the band? I know the record just came out. We're talking now at the end of August and uh, it came out last week and 
couple singles before that. So you got a show, I think, maybe coming up. And there are yeah, in the in the near future, there are three pretty exciting shows for Big Heart Machine. Um, next week, I'm playing this book of music with. Um, the what I'm calling the Midwest contingency of Big Heart Machine. It's um, well, we're playing at Constellation in Chicago on September 7th and um, at 8:30 p.m. And obviously, I couldn't afford to bring the band with me, um, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to play the music at Constellation because it's the best venue in Chicago for listening to like cutting edge live music mm-hmm. and. Um, so I decided to put together basically the the same kind of idea as the New York Big Heart Machine. I I called my old bandmates. I had a band called Eponymous back in the day in Chicago, and I called the rhythm section from Eponymous. And then once they all were able to do it, I got like an incredible band. Uh, Tito Carrillo is playing in the trumpet section. I I can't wait for that. He's he's like sort of the father figure of the jazz trumpet scene in Chicago and um, um, the saxophone section is incredible Dustin Lorenzi is playing Wills McKenna just it's a great band of Chicago people nice um, and then a week after that September 14th we're playing at New Blue 151 um, which I'm also so excited about um, because they've actually never had a big band at the the New Blue 151 is the new location of New Blue. Oh, okay. And it's, it's a, um, I don't know if you've been there yet. yet. It's very new, but um, it's a really great venue. Like, it's, <laughs> I hope nobody from New Blue hears this and is offended, but it's nothing like the old New Blue. It's like a beautiful, like, um, the sound is incredible. It's got like state of the art sound and lighting and there's um, projection screens all over the place and there's like terraces where the audience can sit up above and behind the band oh wow it's a great place to see music and they've never had a big band there so i kind of pitched the idea to them of um we're gonna set up in a really cool way um using the space sort of unconventionally um and then um and i'm hoping that that'll be something cool for other big bands in the city because we're like steadily losing venues that are large enough for a big band so so i'm really excited for that date and um and i'm also excited that sasha berliner agreed to have her quartet um open the night and she hired like a just all-star crazy band um to play with her so i think it's gonna be a really special night and then looking forward in October, I'm also presenting the big Heart Machine music with the Bohemian Caverns Jazz Orchestra at the, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, but I'm guessing Levine or Levine School of Music um, in uh, Baltimore. Um, and uh, and so the Bohemian Caverns, did you ever play at Bohemian Caverns? No, they closed before I got the chance to get down there. Yeah, it was a really cool venue, and they had a house big band, and uh, it's, um, it's uh, it, the band still exists, and they're 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 great, the Bohemian Caverns Jazz Orchestra, and there's actually a, there's some some um, New York dudes who have relocated to D.C. in the band. Kevin McDonald plays drums in that band. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, my buddy Scott Ninmer plays trombone in that band. So, um, and Brad Lindy is the leader. He's a great saxophone player. So, I th- I think that's gonna be really cool too. Yeah, man, awesome. Well, where can people keep in touch with you? Find those dates and and listen to the record. Um, you can listen to the record anywhere, but um, like any artist will encourage you to buy it. And if you're gonna buy it, um, do that on Bandcamp because then you're buying uh, or from your website outside in music because um, <clears throat> you know if you buy the record on iTunes, it, it's next to meaningless in terms of like financially for the artist. But um, but I, I you know I do love to see people streaming the record and uh, you can stream it on Apple Music and uh, and Spotify and Tidal. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, so really I just want people to hear it more than anything. Um, and to stay in touch with me, um, I'm, I'm always encouraging people to sign up for my mailing list because I've been, um, I've been sending out, um, monthly updates with blog posts where I like analyze music and, um, and, so those are a good thing to stay in touch with me with. And plus, if you sign up for my email list, um, I'll send you some exclusive unreleased music that you can't get anywhere else. And you can do that just by going to either briancrock.com um, or bigheartmachine.com. And, uh, and uh, yeah, those are, those are the best ways to, to be in touch with me. Awesome, man. Well, it sounds like we'll have a lot to stay in touch about and a lot to uh, kind of maybe follow up on in a couple of months. So thanks. Yeah, man. And I just want to publicly say thank you to you, Nick, uh, for everything that you're doing for the jazz community out here. Not just for me. I mean, you've you've helped me immensely this year, but um, but uh, it's really, really awe-inspiring to see what you're doing. Um, so keep up the good work, and thanks for that. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, dude. Awesome. Well, man, thank you so much for for taking some time to chat today. And that's composer, multi-woodwindist, and band leader of Big Heart Machine. That's Mr. Brian Kroc. Thanks to Brian for having some time in his schedule for us at Over Here. And if you haven't taken the time to subscribe to the podcast, please do. We've got new things coming out each and every week, as well as videos on the YouTube channel and Facebook page. We're just trying to get everyone's music heard. So if you like something you see by an outside-in music artist, please share with your friends. There's a monthly podcast about our monthly Spotify playlist highlighting some of the best tracks uh, that we've found for uh, the previous month. That is coming out very soon for the month of September, looking back on August of 2018. So thanks again for being here as always, and we'll see you back here in just a week.